Section 13 of the Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Natural History, Volume 4, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 13. Book 17. Chapter 20. Trees which grow but slowly, those which grow with rapidity. Some trees are naturally slow in their growth, and those in particular which grow solely from seed and are long-lived. On the other hand, those that are short-lived grow with great rapidity, such as the fig, pomegranate, plum, apple, pear, myrtle, and willow, for instance. And yet these are the very first to display their productions, for they begin to bear at three years old, and make some show of it even before that period. The pear is the slowest in bearing of all the trees above enumerated. The cypress, however, and the shrub known as the pseudocypress, are the earliest in coming to maturity, for they flower almost immediately, and then produce their seed. All trees will come to maturity more rapidly when the suckers are removed, and the nutrimental juices are thrown into the stock only. Chapter 21. Trees Propagated from Layers Nature, too, has taught us the art of reproduction from layers. The bramble, by reason of its thinness and excessive length to which it grows, bends downwards and throws the extremities of its branches into the earth. These immediately take root again and would fill every place far and wide were it not that the arts of cultivation put a check to it. So much so indeed, it would almost appear that men are born for nothing else but to take care of the earth. Hence it is that a thing that is in itself most noxious and most baneful has taught us the art of reproduction by layers and quicksets. The ivy too has a similar property. Cato says that in addition to the vine, the fig as well as the olive, the pomegranate, every variety of the apple, the laurel, the plum, the myrtle, the filbert, the nut of prenesti, and the plane are capable of being propagated by layers. Layers are of two kinds. In the one, a branch, while still adhering to the tree, is pressed downwards into a hole that measures four feet every way, and at the end of two years it is cut at the part where it curves, and is then transplanted at the expiration of three more years. If it is intended to carry the plant to any distance, it is the best plan to place the layer. Directly it is taken up, either in an osseous basket or any earthen vessel, for its better security when carried. The other mode of reproduction by layers is a more costly one, and is effected by summoning forth a root from the trunk of the tree even. For this purpose, earthen vessels or baskets are provided, and are then well packed with earth. Through these the extremities of the branches are passed, and by this mode of encouragement a root is obtained growing amid the fruit itself, and at the very summit of the tree. For it is at the summit that this method is generally adopted. In this way has a bold and daring inventiveness produced a new tree aloft and far away from the ground. At the end of two years, in the manner already stated, the layer is cut asunder and then planted in the ground, basket and all. The herb savin is reproduced by layers as also by slips. It is said too that the leaves of the wine or pounded wall bricks make it thrive wonderfully well. Rosemary is also produced in a similar manner as also from cuttings of the branches neither savin nor rosemary having any seed. 
The rhododendron is propagated by layers and from seed. Chapter 22. Grafting, the first discovery of it. Nature has also taught us the art of grafting by means of seed. We see a seed swallowed whole by a famished bird. When softened by the natural heat of the crop, it is voided with the fecundating juices of the dung upon some soft couch formed by a tree, or else, as is often the case, is carried by the winds to some cleft in the bark of a tree. Hence it is that we see the cherry growing upon the willow, the plain upon the laurel, the laurel upon the cherry, and the fruits of various tints and hues all springing from the same tree at once. It is said too that the jackdaw, from its concealment of the seeds of plants and holes, which serve as its storehouses, gives rise to a similar result. Chapter 23. Inoculation or Budding in this too the art of inoculating took its rise by the aid of an instrument similar to a shoemaker's paring knife an eye is opened in a tree by paring away the bark and another bud is then enclosed in it that has been previously removed with the same instrument from another tree this was the ancient method of inoculating with the fig and the apple that again described by virgil requires a slight fissure to be made in the knot of a bud which has burst through the bark and in this is enclosed a bud taken from another tree. Thus far has nature been our instructor in these matters. Chapter 24. The Various Kinds of Grafting A different mode of engrafting, however, has been taught us by chance, another great instructor, and one from whom perhaps we have learned a still greater number of lessons. A careful husbandman, being desirous for its better protection to surround his cottage with a palisade, thrust the stakes into growing ivy, in order to prevent them from rotting. Seized by the tenacious grasp of the still-living ivy, the stakes borrowed life from the life of another wood, and it was found that the stock of a tree acted in place of earth. For this method of grafting, the surface is made level with a saw, and the stock carefully smoothed with the pruning knife. This done, there are two modes of proceeding, the first of which consists in grafting between the bark and the wood. The ancients were fearful at first of cutting into the wood, but afterwards they ventured to pierce it to the very middle and inserted the graft in the pith, taking care to enclose but one, because the pith, they thought, was unable to receive more. An improved method has, however, in most recent times, allowed of as many as six grafts being inserted, it being considered desirable by additional numbers to make a provision for the contingency of some of them not surviving. With this view, an incision is carefully made in the middle of the stock, a thin wedge being inserted to prevent the sides from closing, until the graft, the end of which is first cut to a point, has been let into the fissure. In doing this, many precautions are necessary, and more particularly, every care should be taken that the stock is that of a tree suitable for the purpose, and that the graft is taken from one that is proper for grafting. The sap, too, is variously distributed in the several trees, and does not occupy the same place in all. In the vine and the fig, the middle of the tree is the driest, and it is in the summit that the generative power resides. Hence it is that from the top the grafts are selected. In the olive, again, the sap lies in the middle of the tree, and the grafts are accordingly taken from thence, the upper part being comparatively dry. The graft takes most easily in a tree, the bark of which is of a similar nature of its own, and which, blossoming at the same time as itself, has an affinity within it the development of the natural juices. On the other hand, the process of uniting is but slow. 
where the dry is brought in contact with the moist and the hard bark with the soft. The other points to be observed are the following. The incision must not be made in a knot, as such an inhospitable rigidity will certainly repel the stranger plant. The incision should be made, too, in the part which is most compact, and it must not be more than three fingers in length, not in a slanting direction, nor yet such as to pierce the tree from side to side. Virgil is of opinion that the grafts should not be taken from the top, and it is universally agreed that it is best to select them from the shoulders of the tree which look towards the northeast. From a tree, too, that is a good bearer, and from a young shoot, unless indeed the graft is intended for an old tree, in which case it should be of a more robust growth. In addition to this, the graft ought to be in a state of impregnation, that is to say, swelling with buds, and giving every promise of bearing the same year. It ought, too, to be two years old, and not thinner than the little finger. The graft is inserted at the smaller end, when it is the object of the grower that it should not grow to any considerable length, but spread out on either side. But it is more particularly necessary that the buds upon the graft should be smooth and regular, and there must be nothing upon it at all, scabbed or shriveled. Success may be fully reckoned on if the pith of the graft is brought in contact with the wood and bark of the stock, that being a much better plan than merely uniting them bark to bark. In pointing the graft, the pith ought not to be laid bare. Still, however, it should be paired with a small knife, so that the point may assume the form of a fine wedge, not more than three fingers in length, a thing that may be very easily effected by first steeping it in water and then scraping it. The graft, however, must not be pointed while the wind is blowing, and care must be taken that the bark is not rubbed off from either graft or stock. The graft must be thrust into the stock up to the point where the bark begins. Care, too, must be taken not to wrench off the bark during the process of insertion, nor must it be thrust back so as to form any folds or wrinkles. It is for this reason that a graft should not be used that is too full of sap. No, by Hercules, no more than one that is dry and parched. For by doing so, in the former case, from the excess of moisture, the bark becomes detached, and in the latter, from want of vitality, it yields no secretions, and consequently will not incorporate with the stock. It is a point most religiously observed to insert the graft during the moon's increase, and to be careful to push it down with both hands. Indeed, it is really the fact that in this operation, the two hands acting at the same moment are of necessity productive of a more modified and better regulated effort. Grafts that have been inserted with a vigorous effort are later in bearing, but last all the longer, when inserted more tenderly, the contrary is the result. The incision in the stock should not be too open or too large, nor ought it to be too small, for in such case it should either force out the graft or else kill it by compression. But the most necessary precaution of all is to see that the graft is fairly inserted, and that it occupies exactly the middle of the fissure in the stock. Some persons are in the habit of making the place for the fissure in the stock with a knife, keeping the edges of the incision together with bands of osseous bound tightly round the stock. They then drive in the wedges, the bands keeping the stock from opening too wide. There are some trees that are grafted in the seed plot, and then transplanted the very same day. If the stock used for grafting is of very considerable thickness, it is the best plan to insert the graft between the bark and the wood, for which purpose a wedge made of bone is best, for fear lest when the bark is loosened, the wood should be bruised. 
In the cherry, the bark is removed before the incision in the stalk is made. This, too, is the only tree that is grafted after the winter solstice. When the bark is removed, this tree presents a sort of downy substance, which, if it happens to adhere to the graft, will very speedily destroy it. When once the graft is safely lodged by the aid of the wedge, it is of advantage to drive it home. It is an excellent plan, too, to graft as near the ground as possible, if the conformation of the trunk and knots will admit of it. The graft should not project from the stalk more than six fingers in length. Cato recommends a mixture of argil or powdered chalk and cow dung to be stirred together till it is of a viscous consistency, and then inserted in the fissure and rubbed all around it. From his writings on the subject, it is very evident that at that period it was the practice to engraft only between the wood and the bark, and in no other way, and that the graft was never inserted beyond a couple of fingers in depth. He recommends, too, that the pear and the apple should be grafted in spring, as also during fifty days at the time of the summer solstice and during the time of vintage, but that the olive and the fig should be grafted in spring only, in a thirsting, or in other words, a dry moon. He says also that it should be done in the afternoon, and not while a south wind is blowing. It is a singular thing that, not content with protecting the graft in the manner already mentioned, and with sheltering it from showers and frosts by means of turfs and supple hands of split osiers, that it should be covered with bug loss as well, a kind of herb so called, which is to be tied over it and then covered up with straw. At the present day, however, it is thought sufficient to cover the bark with a mixture of mud and chaff, allowing the graft to protrude a couple of fingers in length. Those who wait for spring to carry on these operations will find themselves pressed for time, for the buds are then just bursting, except indeed in the case of the olive, the buds of which are remarkably long in developing themselves, the tree itself having extremely little sap beneath the bark. This too is apt, when in too large quantities, to injure the grafts. As to the pomegranate too, the fig and the rest of the trees that are of a dry nature, it is far from beneficial to them to put off the process of grafting till a late period. The pear may be grafted even when in blossom, so that with it the operation may be safely delayed to the month of May even. If grafts of fruit trees have to be carried to any distance, it is considered the best plan, with the view of preserving the juices to insert them in a turnip. They may also be kept alive by placing them near a stream or a pond, between two hollow tiles covered up at each end with earth. The grafts of vines, however, are kept in dry holes, in which they are covered over with straw, and then with earth, care being taken to let the tops protrude. Chapter 25. Grafting the Vine Cato speaks of three methods of grafting the vine. The first consists in piercing the stock to the pit, and then inserting the grafts sharpened at the end, in manner already mentioned, care being taken to bring the pit of the two in contact. The second is adopted in case the two vines are near one another, the sides of them both being cut in a slanting direction where they face each other, after which the pith of the two trees is united by tying them together. In employing the third method, the vine is pierced obliquely to the pith, and grafts are inserted a couple of feet in length. They are then tied down and covered over with prepared earth, care being taken to keep them in an upright position. In our time, however, this method has been greatly improved by making use of the garlic auger, which pierces the tree without scorching it, it being the fact that everything that burns the tree weakens its powers. Care, too, is taken to select a graft 
that is just beginning to germinate and not to leave more than a couple of the buds protruding from the stalk. The wine, too, should be carefully bound with withers of elm, incisions being made in it on either side, in order that the slimy juices may exude through them in preference, which are so particularly injurious to the vine. After this, when the graft has grown a couple of feet, the wife by which it is fastened should be cut, and the graft left to increase of its own natural vigour. The proper time for grafting the wine has been fixed as from the autumnal equinox to the beginning of the budding season. The cultivated plants are generally grafted on the roots of wild ones, where these last are of a drier nature. But if a cultivated tree should be grafted on a wild one, it will very soon degenerate and become wild. The rest depends entirely on the weather. Dry weather is the best suited for grafting, an excellent remedy for any evil effects that may possibly be caused by the drought, being a few pots of earth placed near the stock and filled with ashes, through which a little water is slowly filtered. Light dews are extremely favourable to grafting by inoculation. Chapter 26. Grafting by Scutcheons. Grafting by scutcheons would appear to owe its origin to that by inoculation but it is suited more particularly to a thick bark, such as that of the fig tree, for instance. For this purpose, all the branches are cut off in order that they may not divert the sap, after which the smoothest part is selected in the stock, and a scutcheon of the bark removed, due care being taken that the knife does not go below it. A similar piece of bark from another tree, with a protuberant bud upon it, is then inserted in its place, care being taken that the union is so exact that there is no room left for a cicatrix to form, and the juncture so perfect as to leave no access to either damp or air. Still, however, it is always the best plan to protect the scutcheon by means of a plaster of clay and a band. Those who favour the modern fashions pretend that this method has been only discovered in recent times. But the fact is that we find it employed by the ancient Greeks and described by Cato, who recommends it for the olive and the fig and he goes so far as to determine the very dimensions, even in accordance with his usual exactness. The scutcheon, he says, when taken off with the knife, should be four fingers in length and three in breadth. It is then fitted to the spot which it is to occupy, and anointed with the mixture of his which has been previously described. This method too he recommends for the apple. Some persons have adopted another plan with the vine, which consists partly of that of grafting by scutcheon, and partly by fissure. They first remove a square piece of bark from the stock, and then insert a slip in the place that is thus laid bare. I once saw in Thulii, near Tiber, a tree that had been grafted upon all these various ways and loaded with fruit of every kind. Upon one branch there were nuts to be seen, upon another berries, upon another grapes, upon another pears, upon another figs, and upon others pomegranates, and several varieties of apple. The tree, however, was but very short-lived. But with all our experiments, we find it quite impossible to rival nature, for there are some plants that can be reproduced in no manner than spontaneously, and then only in wild and desert spots. The plain is generally considered the best adapted to receive every kind of graft, and next to it the rober. Both of them, however, are very apt to spoil the flavour of the fruit. Some trees admit of grafting upon them in any fashion, the fig and the pomegranate, for instance, the vine, however, cannot be grafted upon by scutcheon, nor indeed any other of the trees which has a bark that is thin, weak, or cracked. 
so too those trees which are dry or which contain but little moisture will not admit of grafting by inoculation this last method is the most prolific of them all and next to it that by scutcheon but neither of them can be depended upon and this last more particularly for when the adherence of the bark is the only point of union the scutcheon is liable to be immediately displaced by the slightest gust of wind grafting by insertion is the most reliable method and the tree so produced will bear more fruit than one that is merely planted we must not here omit one very singular circumstance corelius a member of the equestrian order at rome and a native of atesti grafted a chestnut in the territory of neapolis with a slip taken from the same tree and from this was produced the chestnut which is so highly esteemed and from him has derived its name at a later period again tertius his freedman grafted the corelian chestnut afresh there is this difference between the two the corelian is more prolific but the aterian is of a superior quality chapter twenty seven plants which grow from a branch it is accident that has the credit of devising the other methods of reproduction and has taught us how to break off a branch of a tree and plant it in the earth from seeing stakes when driven in the earth take root and grow it is in this way that many of the trees are reproduced and the fig more particularly which may be propagated also by the methods previously stated with the exception indeed of that by cuttings the best plan however is to take a pretty large branch and after sharpening it with a stake to drive it to a considerable depth in the earth taking care to leave only a small portion above ground and then to cover it over with sand the pomegranate too may be planted in a similar manner the hole being first widened with a stake the same too with the myrtle for all trees of this nature a branch is required three feet in length and not quite the thickness of the arm care being taken to keep the bark on and to sharpen the branch to a point at the lower end chapter twenty eight trees which grow from cuttings the mode of planting them the myrtle too may be propagated from cuttings and the mulberry is grown no other way the religious observances relative to lightning forbidding it to be grafted on the elm hence it would appear that the present is a fitting opportunity for speaking of reproduction from cuttings care should be taken more particularly to select the slips from fruitful trees and it should be seen that they are neither bent scabbed nor bifurcated the cuttings too should be thick enough to fill the hand and not less than a foot in length the bark too should be uninjured at the end of which is cut and lies nearest the root should always be the one inserted in the earth while the work of germination is going on the slip should be kept well moulded up until such time as it has fully taken root end of section 13 read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama